are here in the 11FS office in London for episode 108 of Blockchain Insider, the weekly show dedicated to the news of where blockchain meets crypto and crypto meets institutions. Today we bring you a $120 million digital IPO, crypto catches MasterCard's eye, and 98% of Bitcoin is used for legal things. All this and more on today's Blockchain Insider. I'm your host, Simon Taylor, and joining me as co-host today is the one and only Tina Baker-Taylor. TBT yourself, how are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm really, really good. What's been going on? Oh, what hasn't been going on? Yeah. I was I was just in Seattle on holiday. Yeah. That was great. Back yeah. to the mothership. Back to the mothership in London yeah. where crypto never sleeps. Exactly. We're not alone. <laughs> We're also joined by a debutant. Uh, we have Claudio. Claudio, how do I say your last name? Belay. Yeah, that's how you say it. Uh, you're a data scientist at Elliptic. How's life over at Elliptic? Very good, thank you. Always busy every day. It's very busy, but it's great to be here today. Indeed. Um, I am definitely not a data scientist, so I'm curious to learn more about all things data science, which I'm sure we'll get into, but enough foreshadowing best, for now. Best job to have right now. Yeah. Any of you kids out there, go into data science. Heck yeah. Get paid lots of money, don't you, Claudia? Well, I Lots cannot really <laughs> speak for uh, <laughs> job every, security yeah, for life. But, uh, it's it's an interesting job. Yeah. I imagine it's pretty. Yeah, that's that's the real payoff, isn't it? Right. Do you enjoy your work. All right, first story. Um, let's get on with this. Um, the blockcrypto.com report that IBM, Lenovo, Nokia, and Vodafone are going to launch a new blockchain network for supply chain management, which sounds about as rock and roll as stories get. But actually, uh, I quite like this one, believe it or not. Uh, the network dubbed Trust Your Supplier. Oh, yeah. Um, aimed, or, or for short, TYS. Mm, yeah, catchy. Uh, aims to simplify supplier validation, onboarding, lifecycle, and information management. Companies like Anheuser-Busch, uh, InBev, um, major pharma company GlaxoSmithKline, Cisco, Schneider Electric are other founding participants in this network. And IBM said uh, it creates a digital passport for supplier identity on a blockchain uh, that allows suppliers to share information uh, with any permissioned buyer on the network. Now, when I read that IBM quote, I thought, I don't need a blockchain to share information. Turns out that's not strictly what's going on. If you actually click into the underlying press release, it looks like what's actually happening is uh, there are third parties who are doing some auditing work. Uh, so you've got validators such as Dun & Bradstreet, uh, Ecovalidis, and Rapid Ratings who are providing outside verification or audit capabilities directly on the network. So if I'm on the network as a supplier to InBev or Anheuser-Busch or GlaxoSmithKline, let's say I create some, some basic um, materials like hops, I, I sell grain or barley or wheat or something, and those organizations need it, if Rapid Ratings or Dun & Bradstreet have validated me on that blockchain, then I could see that uh, if I'm in one of the other companies and go, ah, a third party has already audited them. We've signed up to this network. We agree to these standards. That saves us a whole bunch of time uh, and cost and energy. So it seems like a very sensible step. Um, but I don't know what you thought about this one, Tina. Is it uh, sensible or really, really dumb? Oh, I don't, I don't know if it's sensible or dumb. What I see when I'm looking at this list is there needs to be some um, level of you know, interoperability amongst these companies. So you're going to need several Anheuser-Buschs to make it viable to be able to validate a hops producer 
to be cost effective, right? So potentially if you've got, you know, a, a alcohol manufacturer or whatever, a brewery, um, a, a pharmaceutical company, an energy company, are they sharing enough suppliers to make that validation of the suppliers meaningful? Mm-hmm. Well, I think IBM were bringing all of their suppliers, their sort of 1,800 plus or 18,000 plus supplier list. Uh, I think another organization talks about bringing their 4,000 suppliers. You've got to say eventually there's going to be some crossover sure. between those. Well, with any consortia, you need, you know, a mass, right? And you need everybody to kind of agree on a baseline level of what what the source of truth is or, or what the, the level of meaningfulness is. Um, and so is if they're approaching it as a consortia, and that's what the effort is to do, because there'll be a number of suppliers that aren't so indigenous to that particular um, type of company. So let's not use hops, for an example, and let's use, um, you know, uh, an accountant or, you know, an auditor or um, compliance professionals or, you know, a lot of these are regulated entities anyway. Um, then I think you've got more crossover of supplier yeah. bounty. I think I think the broad point of you've got to have that crossover of suppliers in order to get yeah. the efficiencies is a good one. I think also what problem this solves is an interesting one to play with because uh, if I've got somebody else who's done the diligence on the supplier, it's nice that they've saved me a job. If we all agree. If on, we all agree. On what the baseline of that is, that's where the consortia, I think, comes in, agreeing but, the standards. But assuming we agree the standards... There's, there's real issues in the likes of Apple's supply chain, Lenovo's supply chain, about where the silicon comes from that goes into manufacturing the chips that then Apple eventually use. So having this transparency in your supply chain does have a real social impact. I mean, Claudio, did you have any thoughts when you saw this story? To be honest, what caught my eye is um, the role of IBM and how many initiatives really IBM is leading, mm. and including the work that... Uh, I will talk about uh, in a minute. And in general, I think um, the su- supplier chain, chain application of blockchain is quite interesting. Mm-hmm. But I guess the, the, the uh, challenge to that supply chain application has always been uh, Tina's point about will anybody use it? And, and then the second one being, do you need a blockchain? Uh, could you just create this consortia around some traditional style of database? What is it about the blockchain they're using specifically? I think having that no central point of governance amongst lots of corporates that that maybe don't trust each other is is interesting. But could they, if they've built a consortia, wouldn't that organization just play that role anyway? So um, if nothing else, if uh, the idea in using the marketing term blockchain has helped people solve a problem that may result in fairer treatment of suppliers and, and workers in those supply chains, then, then I'm all for it. Well, I think from a procurement standpoint, one of the hiccups in being able to source uh, you know, supply chain partners from a consortium is when were they last audited? When were they last validated? Mm-hmm. So if you're looking at blockchain in that context, you would be able to have you know, an official timestamp that couldn't be revoked that showed when the last time this data was relevant, which I think would give procurement teams a greater sense of confidence. One of the really interesting things Vitalik said when we interviewed him, I think back on episode 89, I believe it was, uh, was that... uh, 
PKI signatures, so public key cryptography, always gave me, um, I know that that person said that thing and agreed it at that point in time. Uh, what a blockchain gives me is, and we all agree that that is still true, Correct, yeah. or we all agree that that state has now changed. Yeah. And actually, that's a super useful thing for a procurement team. So shout out if you're in a procurement team. We know it's uh, there are enough challenges in there trying to buy from suppliers and um, you know, kind of this is why big companies end up just buying from other big companies and struggle to buy from smaller suppliers because there are so many rules that exist for good reasons designed to prevent things like modern slavery, designed things to to prevent things such as uh, counterfeit goods and so on. So, And actually, it could have the inverse effect where if there are companies who, for the most part, ascribe to and adhere to their own procurement requirements and then the off chance that there is some rogue factory somewhere that isn't then this level of transparency may identify some of those anomalies that you know the the home office isn't even aware of. I've been speaking to a number of people in bank procurement departments over the past two or three months, and, and one of the consistent themes that comes up is that they you know, really want to work with innovative, smaller suppliers. They really want to be able to do better things for customers, but there are simply so many rules they have to follow, and so many of those rules are spreadsheet-based, paper-based, and so oh, yeah. many times they're reinventing the wheel to, to have to just deal with one individual supplier. So anything that makes their lives easier seems like a well, good thing. At, at, at the last large financial institution, or one of the financial institutions that I worked for, just onboarding a copywriter could take six months mm-hmm. to go through all of the requirements that procurement had set out. And what this could potentially also do is um, put types of suppliers into buckets where you have enhanced due diligence mm-hmm. for a good that might be farmed and then therefore could be exposed to pesticides that maybe don't fit within my criteria or could be for regulated substances that go inside of this medication that I'm producing, etc. Um, so I do think that this might be an opportunity for blockchain to actually provide a service or a um, that validation for some of those and being able to segment some of those criteria in uh, a meaningful way. What I think is really powerful is when you consider that uh, the there have been many instances, especially in, in poorer nations, where uh, people are receiving counterfeit drugs that otherwise could have been, you know, life-threatening or, or life-saving. Sure. So if you're not getting a life-saving drug because somebody's making money off the counterfeit through the supply chain, and it's always one supplier who's always doing that, and your only way to catch that is by running your own audits, mm. it's really helpful if you can buddy together and figure out who the bad actors are in the system. So yep. uh, if that means that people who need life-saving drugs get more of them, I'm all for it. Um, but this stuff's still early and it's got a long way to go. Um, there's a linked story, as Claudio did allude to, um, coming from Yahoo Finance. IBM. MIT and a little company called Elliptic uh, from right here in London uh, released the world's largest labeled data set of Bitcoin transactions. Uh, and of course, uh, Claudio, I'm just going to throw it straight to you um, on this one. Do you want to just give me who Elliptic are first before we, uh, before we get into to this, this story? Yeah, of course. So Elliptic is a blockchain intelligence company. And what we do uh, for our clients is that uh, we provide a service um, for... Uh, anti-money laundering, so essentially to comply. And uh, this service is for um, financial um, institutions or exchanges or um, crypto companies in general uh, that need to comply to anti-money laundering or counter-terrorism financing. 
exciting stuff. And you guys have been around for some time uh, kind of doing this work, working with law enforcement, working with um, a lot of the exchanges and, and a lot of the actors in, in, in the market generally helping prevent some of, that, some of that activity. So this story in particular talks about this data set that you receive from exchanges and financial service providers. Uh, of course, it, there are pains to point out it doesn't include any personally identifiable information about users. Let's be clear about that, such as names, addresses, social security numbers. However, it can still be used to connect multiple transactions to the same customer ID. And that's what you're using to prevent financial crime is you're saying, we don't know who that customer is, but that customer ID did these things. So uh, walk me through the data set and, um, and what you were able to see as a result of that data set. Can I just ask quickly, what's the customer ID? So is it a wallet address? Yeah, it's in general um, some entity in the blockchain that we can, we can identify as being an entity. We don't know necessarily what this entity is, but uh, we know that they, have, they follow some par- particular pattern, for example. So you guys receive data from exchanges, financial service providers with no personally identifiable information, um, such as names, addresses, etc. But you can transact, uh, you can connect multiple transactions to uh, one particular uh, transaction ID and sort of identify who individual entities are in that network to prevent financial crime. So what did you find when you when you looked into this labeled data set? Yeah, that's correct. So what we deal every day is really uh, public information, which is blockchain data. Mm. And uh, what we did um, by collaborating with this team at IBM, um, the MIT IBM Watson AI Lab, is to um, try uh, one of these um, um, state-of-the-art machine learning methods called graph convolutional networks and apply it to try and identify licit and illicit transactions in the Bitcoin blockchain. Mm -hmm. Now, um, the interesting thing about this method is that uh, it uh, adds information about the graph into the architecture of a neural network. Neural networks are these very effective uh, models in machine learning, for example, um, when we talk about deep learning, they are also neural networks used very effectively for uh, image recognition or uh, so, 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 yeah, these types of techniques are used, for example, the ability for Facebook to know who you need to tag by facial recognition ahead of time and the ability now of AI to recognize the difference between a cat and a dog and a Mars bar is, is all from this neural network deep learning type of techniques. That's right. And uh, up until 2017, it was very difficult to apply this model uh, to very unstructured data like graphs. Mm-hmm. So the novelty uh, nowadays is that uh, we are trying these methods um, to graphs. I mean, Bitcoin can be represented as a graph mm-hmm. in which you have transactions, for example, that are nodes in this graph. And the edges in this graph represent a flow of Bitcoins mm-hmm. between one transaction and the other one. So uh, in teaming up with... Um, with these teams, we've given a partially labeled data set in which um, we say, you know, some transactions are actually, they have been created by a licit uh, or, a, or an illicit entity. And these are ones where you know for a fact they were created by an illicit entity, so you've given them some examples of what illicit looks like. Exactly. And so 
because the model needs to uh, have examples, mm -hmm. you know, to learn from. It needs training data. Exactly. You, we need to train the model, and then once the model is trained, it can tell us uh, this transaction, I think it's... Uh, coming from an illicit entity or an illicit entity. Fantastic. So what was the headline number you found here? Is all of Bitcoin illicit? 90% of it's illicit? It's, it's all criminals, right? Yeah, so... <laughs> yeah, okay, good. That, we've established that. <laughs> yeah. no. No, no, no. So Okay, so we found something different. What did you we find? We found something, something different. So first of all, we only gave a um, small subgraph of the whole Bitcoin graph. So it's a huge graph, the Bitcoin, because if you just think that there are 450 million transactions as of today, and it's an ever-growing data set, um, that's a lot of data. So uh, this data set that we have named elliptic uh, data set, is, uh, is made of 200, about 200,000 transactions. It's a pretty decent sample. It is still a pretty decent sample. When yes. you consider some sample sizes that are used to make claims in headlines, um, then, then I think that's, uh, that's pretty impressive. So the, the article here, I'll just come out and say it, um, is that only 2% of transactions via Bitcoin are illicit. And you will, as a data scientist, say, within my uh, subset of 200,000 transactions, and I hear you, that could be different and it may not be representative of the entire network. But talk to me about how you tried to make it representative. So, in truth, uh, as a company, Elliptic, we have data for the whole mm -hmm. Bitcoin graph. So we have only provided this small subset, but uh, we know much more than than this. Oh, okay. You guys know all. <laughs> well, otherwise we wouldn't be able to, to provide an anti-money laundering software for <laughs> yeah. exchanges that, that uh, you know, trade every day. Or, yeah. um, but it is a very decent data set in order to test these uh, cutting-edge models yeah. and try to see whether we can apply, it, uh, can apply them uh, in production in our system. Uh, Tina, I want to bring you in here to set the table in terms of the context, because illicit activity is a big worry um, that you see in, in governments with yep. regulators and policymakers. Like, what's actually been happening? We've seen, you know, uh, David Marcus from Facebook's been pulled in front of the, the Senate Banking Committee, as have other uh, crypto users, uh, crypto uh, companies. Yep. We've also seen um, the U.S. Treasury Steve Mnuchin making comments about uh, what are we going to do with regulating crypto. Um, so set the table for us here. Uh, what? Why do you think there's so much pushback against this um, and, and what's been going on? Well, um, I had a conversation yesterday with someone um, discussing this very topic and I said, well, they only found 2% of transactions to be illicit. And this person is an educated person who is well-versed in this space. And he said, I don't believe it. And I said, well, hang on a second. Let's talk about that. And he said, no, 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 I, you know, I, you're, you're not going to make me believe this. And I said, well, so what does it take? So I've brought you fairly empirical evidence I've demonstrated my research methodology. You know, it's been pen-tested. I, in this case, Elliptic has a number of incredibly credible 
um, partners um, that are validating this information. IBM and MIT peer reviews. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and so what's it going to take um, for people to believe the data? And then today I had another conversation with, with someone else, a journalist in the space, um, and told them about the conversation that I had yesterday. And her response was, in my experience, it takes people, you know, seven to ten times of hearing the same thing over and over and over before it starts to resonate. So as with a number of issues in crypto, we have a belief system or an ideology that sometimes butts up against data or reality. Now, the fact that in crypto we haven't always had transparent, um, pen-tested, um, clear data to go from is a challenge, right? So I think projects like this give organizations like GDF and me as a regulatory advocate some ammunition or at least some credibility when I go in and talk to policymakers about the actual risk versus the perceived risk. And I think that's what we're talking about here. Yeah, so, so just to um, make clear something, the data set that we have provided uh, to MIT and IBM was not peer-reviewed by them. It was considered as ground truth. Mm. So what... Um, they, even better. Even better, exactly. They trust us. But a number that I can tell, for example, for uh, the year 2019 up, up until today, is that we know... Um, we have es estimated about 830 million US dollars being um, exchanged in uh, dark markets, in bitcoins, which represents about, well, less than actually 0.5% of the actual uh, bitcoin uh, mm -hmm. uh, payments uh, up to today from 2019. So it is a small uh, amount, but still if there weren't um, softwares like ours that would you know, help companies to comply and uh, understand the risks with um, uh, transactions, then... It could be higher. It sure. could be higher, yes. Sure, but you could, you could use that argument for anything. So if, if the there were no AML <laughs> you know, processes in place or if the regulator didn't have um, confines for financial institutions then you know, they'd, they'd be laundering money for drug cartels willy-nilly, right? It's profitable to do that. I, I think the argument is about effectiveness. Um, and so you know, there are processes for preventing money laundering that have been around for quite some time, but they are paper-based and they, they involve relying on your counterparty. You know, we've worked at large banks, we've seen how those processes work, and quite often it involves um, doing some desk research into who the shareholders of companies of companies of companies are, and you can find what you can find, and then ultimately you fill in some forms and take it to a committee, and the committee decides inside of a bank whether millions of dollars should move. And we have seen very large fines at banks for failings in that process. What's interesting to me is how data-driven this is. This I was is just going to say that. So if you've got a committee of people that makes a risk assessment, right? So what is the credit risk here? What is the uh, the, the risk of illicit activity? There, there is a committee, a steering committee, an advisory council, whatever, that is making a risk assessment based on X. In your situation, you've trained a, you know, a, a, a an AI entity to make a non-biased, unemotional, dispassionate calculation, right? So my bias and my ideology doesn't come into that decision. Mm -hmm. So 
again, I think it's two sides of the coin. You could say, yes, this is fabulous. It's data-driven. Um, and we've got robots that are making you know, really clear mm-hmm. um, decisions for us. But then again, going back to that um, ethics question around AI, we're training the AI to make those decisions. And that comes with some sense of bias too. I, I, quite possibly. There's always that risk. The, the, and, and you'll know this, I suppose, better than anybody in this room, that, that, that the AI is as good as it's, as it's training and it's in the environment and the data you feed it. Um, my my th- lesson here for, for a lot of the banks, I think, is twofold. One, that point you made, Tina, about um, that you have to hear it seven to ten times before it comes true. I think there are a lot of people that keep looking at these things and just refuse to believe it. Yeah. And, and, and that's an interesting perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, but at, funnily enough, it's not the anti-money laundering departments or experts that are really struggling with this. Once they've looked at it a few times, they, they're the ones that come around. It's the executive level. Correct. Um, and it's why they don't have the, the knowledge of um, preventing um, money laundering, that they, they're running more on instinct, I think. And then the second thing is that lesson for the bank and financial market infrastructure is how could you be data-driven? And I think it's hard to be data-driven on top of a paper process. Again, you're only as good as the data that comes in. So if I'm relying on paper and committees, then it would be very hard to run the model you've run. Uh, let me add one thing. One other important aspect for um, uh, regulations and anti-money laundering agencies, they want a model to be able to explain why it made a decision that it made. Yeah. So it's a problem of uh, explainability. And um, so when you run... Because a person can explain. Well, it, currently, a lot of these models are like black boxes, mm-hmm. so you have to trust them. So it is difficult, even in this sense, to have uh, banks trust yeah, they could, and, and I think a lot of what banks spend their just time doing... Just remind me of Theranos, a black box that just spits out something. Well, uh, yeah, the, and, and you can see why the fear is there, and it's, yeah. and it's an emotive fear rather than, mm-hmm. than a rational one. Uh, but it, it's one that uh, that fear from is, is a cultural one as well. The way banks make decisions is consensual. They'll all sit in a committee and agree the process they're going to follow. And this is the opposite of that, which is let the data drive the outcome. And I think there's something about you know how it all works and you know how the models get trained and you know the data the model has been fed. So you know how it's been able to be trained to get to its conclusion. So there's a lot of variables you're in control of, even if you're not in control of the the, the decision-making process itself. Listen, I am now going to move us to the next story. Um, comes from Coindesk.com. Uh, and this is about MasterCard building a team to develop crypto and crypto wallet projects. Uh, and according to their careers website, they're looking for senior blockchain engineer, an engineering lead, a director for product development, um, a, a the vice president for product management for it, uh, director of product management for cryptocurrency and wallets. Um, and according to the description, the director of product management for cryptocurrency and wallets will be expected to lead the ideation, definition, design, and development of innovative cryptocurrency solutions, including wallet solutions. Sounds like they're building a wallet. It, it sure does. Um, do you think this is Libra related? They are part of the Libra Association after all. Well, I mean, I think it confirms that they potentially are one of the Libra partners that are in it for the long haul. I mean, I think 
We've been looking at the Libra partners over the last couple of weeks and wondering how many of them are actually going to stick, right? Yeah. Um, considering the regulatory scrutiny that they have been under. Um, so this confirms for me that, that MasterCard, Libra or non-Libra, um, see this as an opportunity. It doesn't surprise me. MasterCard, I think, has always been a bit on the forefront of looking at um, innovative payment models. Yeah. Um, and they also have a real depth and wealth of experience in emerging markets, um, specifically Africa. Mm -hmm. um, so this doesn't surprise me at all. Um, and it, It's aligned to their strategy and their history. Mm. So if you look at, uh, so MasterCard built something called the Better Than Cash Alliance, uh, which is an attempt to displace cash in markets where cash can actually be really troublesome. A lot of people see cash as freedom, but uh, is it freedom when uh, I have a 50-50 chance of getting mugged, mugged. On, my, mm -hmm. on my way home on a, on a given day, um, where I Actually, if I can move the money electronically, I, I can do that. So, Mastercard, you know, there is a there is a um, an inclusion element to to what they're doing. Also, if you look at the card on, you know, the the logos on the Apple Card, if you look at the logo uh, on most of the challenger banks. It's MasterCard, it's not Visa. Uh, they've been really at the forefront of working with fintechs and anything innovative. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised if Visa had the same team, if Amex have the same team. Uh, and you know, what, what's surprising me actually is that we've not seen more action coming out of the, the Tencents and the, uh, the, the Alipays of the world trying to take their scheme into into. Well, I think they already have adoption of mobile payments in whatever so form. So for them, it's just a matter of issuing a token and converting that adoption over. Mm -hmm. um, where you know the the visas and the Mastercards are working predominantly in markets where people aren't using that type of payment mechanism already. We're still pretty card. Uh, dependent. We're using a lot more card and cash than certainly they are in, in Asia. Intensive, uh, it, it's interesting area. as well that there's there's probably like three or four different areas as subsections of crypto that that Mastercard could look at. They could look at the the cash like wallet experience that you would get with a um, sort of a Libra like wallet, um, and and what does that look like as but an? They've tried that, right? So MasterPass um, did not take off, right? People did not want to use it, and um, but it, but I wonder if crypto changes that conversation enough for it to be worth investigating for a director of innovation and product management? Well, I'm going to apply for that job for sure. Yeah. Um, but I think what's interesting is we, um, going back to David Marcus's testimony a couple of weeks ago, um, he was grilled pretty hard on where the Calibra wallet would sit and how would it interact with other wallets. Um, and I'm not I'm not sure that his answers were consistent all the way across that testimony or if he was just getting asked, you know, multiple questions in a different way that it appears that he was. But it felt like the intention was that they would be, Libra would be interoperable amongst other wallets. It would just be that the Calibra wallet would be what was the the default, right? So it could be that part of that Libra project, MasterCard intends to have their own wallet in which Libra can move in and out of, in addition to whatever token they might issue on their own and or um, facilitate transmission or, or banking of. 
and and that makes a ton of sense to me. I think there's also several other routes that they could look at, which is the the crypto with a capital C, which is the management of data and access and wallet as being a thing that allows me to use uh, new types of cryptography to validate my identity, to prove that this is true, to prove my credentials are no longer true, to sure. to revoke credentials, that whole post GDPR sort of thing. Yeah, credit card uh, rails have a huge amount of leakage in chargebacks. Indeed. Right. So could this solve some of those chargeback leakage uh, profit margin challenges that they may have? And just in as well, MasterCard have acquired Nets, which is um, that has an account-to-account payments business in the Nordic region. And the Nordic region has been uh, an area that has seen a lot of uh, interest from Chinese tourists and is seeing a lot of uh, Alipay and WeChat adoption across their markets. So I wonder as well if this is sort of like the global spreading of networks and the competition between those different networks starting to, to play out a little bit. Alrighty, uh, any thoughts, Claudio? We'll just move on to the uh, the ad break. This episode is brought to you by R3. It's been a big year for R3, the enterprise software firm behind Corda. Uh, Corda is fast becoming a gold standard in enterprise blockchain technology because it's an out-of-the-box uh, blockchain platform built specifically for businesses that comes in two versions, open source and enterprise, both completely interoperable and compatible. You can get started on Corda open source and then easily migrate to enterprise as your business requirements evolve. Uh, and the Corda the platform uh, truly offers the best of both worlds, and it's backed by a pretty decent community of over 200 application builders and consumers. Uh, you can download Corda open source on GitHub today, or visit r3.com to download Corda Enterprise on a trial basis. Alrighty, on with the show. Uh, next story comes from Cointelegraph.com. Uh, Grayscale are going to conduct one of the largest single-day crypto transfers, apparently. Uh, they're going to move almost $3 billion worth of their digital currency to Coinbase. And uh, Coinbase's comment here was, as a New York state-chartered trust company, Coinbase custody is held to the same fiduciary standards as national banks. We offer some of the broadest and deepest insurance coverage in the crypto industry. So it looks like the um, the institutional crypto players and Coinbase custody seem to be uh, coming together quite nicely, Tina. Um, custody, why is that important? And, uh, you know, sort of set the scene on why crypto custody is a little different. Well... What I first wanted to say about the story that I think is so interesting is as we have hypothesized about custody over the last, you know, year, months, is um, that when the institutions decide to come in, they're not going to go to a crypto native provider. They're going to go to the likes of Fidelity or JP Morgan or State Street. And surely State Street will, you know, be ready in time to receive these types of large transactions. Um, and that's not happened. Mm-hmm. So um, well done, Coinbase. Shout out to Sam McNeville, yep. who's done a cracking job over the last 18 months. Um, and so I think that's really exciting. I think that um, having that opportunity to prove that actually potentially a crypto native custodian will have um a expertise and an insight into how best to safeguard these assets um, versus a traditional custodian incumbent um, that's kind of learning in real time. This is an interesting test, right? So it's interesting. When I speak to um, incumbent custodians, they will look at crypto and go, oh, well, you're not following all the rules of custody as it exists for today's assets and and almost become frustrated that people don't understand the rules of custody. And then when you look at 
crypto itself. You go, well, crypto is this weird other thing and it has a lot of quirks. What happens if a coin um, network forks? Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you manage all of the things around that? Mm-hmm. How do you manage the fact that they're managed primarily? How do you manage the management? Um, how do you deal with the fact that uh PKI and and keys and signatures are so, so critical. And the management of those keys becomes the ownership, effectively, of that asset. Uh, And the creation of a transaction is hard to reverse. So custody becomes really, really important. But if something did go wrong, then the insurance becomes a critical piece. And then where does liability sit? And what are all the rules that need to sit around that? We've had some pretty significant and very recent... um, custodial stories, right? So Quadriga obviously comes to mind where, you know, the the money isn't there, was probably not there for some time. Where was it? Um, So, you know, where's the audit and accountability there? Um, But, you know, in addition to that, when you're talking to policymakers about custody, um, there are a lot of questions that um, are very difficult to explain to someone who doesn't necessarily have that technical expertise to understand just because I have um, I have something in custody doesn't mean I have control over it. And I think that's such a crucial point because we, we often, I mean, the consumer way of thinking about this is custodial wallets versus non-custodial Correct. wallets. And the oversimplified answer is that a, a custodial wallet is one where somebody else is effectively custodying that asset. They're holding, and can act on your behalf. And all yes, that. so the custodian acts on your behalf. So the example everybody gives is, is the likes of a Coinbase. I log into my Coinbase account, but I give Coinbase an instruction to do something for me versus a Trezor or a Ledger Nano where I have this little dongle device, this USB stick, and effectively that is the wallet and that custodies the asset. And only me, the holder of that USB key, can ever move those Bitcoins around or those those crypto assets around. That's the really simple level, but it gets more complicated than that, especially when you're at the institutional level. Well, and so one of the conversations I had recently with a policymaker was if, if you as a custodian have have um, taken custody, so you have you're physically holding those keys. Surely you have control over them. Um, and you know, a very very simplified analogy is if I walk into a Citibank branch and say I want to open a safety deposit box, and we go back to the vault and I stick in all of my jewels and you know sundries, and we both lock the the door and walk away. They are technically holding my assets in custody, but they have zero control over them. Now, if I were to have seven different um, safe deposit boxes and I were to dismantle my tennis bracelet and put a diamond in every box, I've now sharded my tennis bracelet. Mm -hmm. And what kind of effort would that take to go and pick up all of those diamonds and put that thing back together? Which you're going to want to do for security, but does that mean you're in control? Because you've, you've now made it so secure that it becomes impossible to say you're really in control. Nobody's of, in control of that now. Exactly. Really. Yeah. So there's always this tension between making something secure and then making something usable and really simple, but then it's arguably easier to hack. And so and we want it to be more secure, but also the temptation is to have one person's throat to choke if something goes wrong. And more secure often means uh, more people's throats to choke. Which but I sense. really think what is most interesting about this this article is um, you know there have been people in the industry saying that um, as long as there wasn't a large financial institution 
custodial incumbent on the market, then people would continue to use, uh, you know, crypto native custodians. Um, but, you know, with this type of volume, I'm sure, mm-hmm. you know, closed door OTC, they could have got somebody to take hold of these assets. And they, whether they try to or not, the end result is that they're being custody with Coinbase. And I think that's pretty monumental. And we have seen family offices and hedge funds in the crypto space for some time, um, always wary of the risks because of the lack of institutional grade crypto, the uh, crypto custody that it's existed. Actually, has Coinbase made a real play here? And, and will others start to follow? Because there are many other suppliers like them. Um, already, um, next story comes from tokenist.io. Berlin-based AI platform Rise have leveraged Securitize to launch a $120 million security token offering. And of course, the Rise app allows retail investors to manage crypto portfolios, whilst the Rise scanner analyzes the performance of cryptocurrencies in the stock markets and the scanners currently in beta testing with 2,000 participants. Now, the company is looking to raise funds to further develop its technology through this security token offering, or STO. Uh, They hope to aim uh, raise around $120 million, which, if successful, would make it the largest STO in Europe. However, the offering, which Rise also uh, refers to as a digital IPO, will be comprised of two waves. The first, only available to accredited investors and professional investors uh, in the United States, and the second, available to retail. What really stood out to me about this was this is the first sort of quote-unquote security token offering that I've seen in Europe that's come with a prospectus like you would tend to see. And as a result, there's a whole bunch of information about how this has been done that is really, really interesting for financial markets nerds. Um, what stood out to you about this? Because, of course, uh, we did see, uh, I think there was a, the reggae offering from the guys at Blockstack. So we're seeing the creeping... Yeah, but Blockstack so- didn't really need a reggae. Yeah, they would have got the raise anyway. I think the point no, being... No, I mean, they ended up applying for reggae because there was no other regulation for them to apply for. Mm. So they ended up having to kind of over over apply, in my opinion. Which is interesting, though, that there is this desire to legitimize and do things correctly. What did you see when you looked at this one? Well, I would like to understand a little bit more about the the function are they trying to build an index essentially with the rise scanner and is that how the ai trading strategies come into play is that the value here of what they're trying to build i think there's Do you a have bo- a view on that claudio it's difficult to judge from just this headline what kind of ai uh, powers their platform really because you know we talk a lot about kind of quant trading right and um you know that's it's, it's meant to to provide with you know higher yields and again we're talking about the human making maybe not as good choices as you know a trained algorithm um but i guess what i'm wondering is they've already raised quite a lot of money and now they aim to raise another what did you say 120 million mm-hmm. Um, so according to their website, building? their RSE token pays out quarterly dividends from all profits that the Rise AI generates. It allows regular investors to benefit from the massive potential and wealth generation and an unparalleled shift towards AI-powered investment management. But is it a fund? Yeah, it looks like a fund. Um, and there's, there's a whole bunch of uh, other things that you're effectively buying into. 
uh, with it. So it's it's almost like a, um, a software managed fund that you're okay. looking to buy into, which is an interesting concept. Yeah. Now, I would encourage people if you're not already following Oscar D. Torson on Twitter, O.D. Torson. Um, he actually is you know, uh, worked at uh, McKinsey, worked in a lot of banks uh, in the sort of equity side and and, a, and across the strategy side. He does a full teardown of this Bitbond and and kind of everything uh, in the prospectus. So if you really want to nerd out, um, definitely definitely check that out. All right, conscious of the time on this one, I'm just going to cover some stories we didn't have time to cover, uh, or at least I'm going to read them out. Um, the Block Crypto, SEC Commissioner Pierce says uh, the US is not sitting idle over crypto regulations, uh, but could learn from other countries. Well, they just had an FCA, uh, SEC, CFTC tech sprint last Friday. Um, so I think it's encouraging to see. Did they have some alphabet soup there? They, they <laughs> did. But um, I, I do think that uh, the U.S. is looking at other regulatory jurisdictions to kind of learn some of their secret sauce. Which is interesting, given the positions that the U.S. has taken on crypto. I think historically it had been rules is rules, um, and you fit into these buckets. But actually, this is this is a, a bit of a different message. Um, so interesting that the regulators are talking to each other on this stuff. Um, next story um, that we didn't have much time to cover was Newswire.ca. Galaxy Digital announces the approval of a license to underwrite registered public offerings and securities. Uh, and the block crypto.com. China's central bank seeks to accelerate the development of its legal digital currency. I don't know how they're going to accelerate it. Definitely check out theblockcrypto.com. Uh, Mike and the guys over there do a really good job. Now it's time for Tweet of the Week. Tweet, 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 tweet. It's the Tweet of the Week. Tweet of the Week. And this week's Tweet of the Week comes from the one and only Ryan Selkis, a.k.a. at 2BitIdiot. Um, and his tweet reads, uh, Watch Bitcoin take flight as global currency wars kick into high gear. And of course, he charts uh, coin market, uh, no, sorry, on-chain FX, apologies, which is now owned by Masari, which of course... Uh, Brian founded, um, which shows um, Bitcoin Cash being up sort of 3% on the day, Litecoin being up 10% on the day. Um, but what do you think this broader point, Tina? Is there a, any correlation between uh, crypto and, and Bitcoin uh, rising and some of these trade wars and economic instability? Because it feels to me like crypto has been up and down like a yo-yo for the past sort of two, three months, uh, just in a, in a more or less in a cycle. Well, <clears throat> I think that we can, we, we often find correlation um, where sometimes there isn't any. I mean, I, I Correlation don't, doesn't equal causation, right, yeah. Claudia? That's correct. <laughs> so I, I don't personally think that they're correlated. I think some of this might have um, more to do probably with the attention that Libra has generated mm -hmm. than with global trade wars. But that's just me. Sorry, Ryan. Love you. I, I, look, one of my favorite websites of all time is um, Spurious Correlations, like the correlation between uh, per capita cheese consumption and the number of people who died by becoming tangled in their bedsheets. Um, and it is pretty I'm correlated. sure Stephen Paley has a view on that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the divorce rate in Maine and the per capita consumption of margarine in Maine. Um, so For sure, margarine makes you crazy. Yeah, yeah. That, that's the truth. Um, so, look, 
Point being, we shouldn't read too much into this, um, but there is definitely the macro trend of currency wars are a thing. And uh, we are we have seen, I think, more broadly, the yield curve inverting. So the, the, the difference between the price of the short-term bonds and the long-term bonds from US treasuries. Uh, this is typically a thing investors look at and see uh, as the uh, sign that the a recession is coming, a recession is coming. So it... And when a recession comes, investors tend to fly to things that look a lot more like commodities, like gold and other safe haven in air quotes assets. And there is an argument that some people see um, Bitcoin as digital gold, um, sure. which uh, which could be a possibility. All righty. Well, um, just to remind you, listeners, this podcast is brought to you by 11FS, and we're a challenger consultancy uh, working to shape the next generation of financial services. We also create truly digital propositions. Uh, we work with big banks, techs, um, credit card schemes, you know, <laughs> you name it, all kinds of companies who want to get at the most out of where finance meets customers. Uh, if you want to hear more Blockchain Insider every single Thursday, go on ahead and, and hit that subscribe button. And if you're already subscribed, please, please throw us a review you um where can people find out more about you tina you can find me on twitter at at tina taylor or you can learn more about gdf at gdf.io which has got swanky new colors by the way yes it does if you want to know what colors you have to check out you have to go to the website and check it out uh claudia how about yourself and elliptic you can learn more about Elliptic at www.elliptic.co. If you're interested in the Elliptic dataset, you can go on Kaggle, which is this uh, website for... Uh, datasets. Data, yeah, datasets. Oh. And uh, so just go on Kaggle and look for uh, the Elliptic dataset. Very cool. Claudia, thank you so much. And I'll just add, because, you know, that's how I roll. Um, your co-founder, Tom, is doing a really cool webinar on the 22nd um, around Libra and understanding and addressing financial crime risk. 22nd of August, 2019. 22nd of August, 2019. Um, so I think you could probably find an invite to that on Elliptic's website too. Very Or great. on our GDF uh, Twitter channel. Make sure you signed up, people. All right, uh, I've got to also thank our amazing production team here at 11FS, uh, producers Laura, Petri, and Hannah, and of course, Alex, our editor. Thank you for listening. We will, of course, have more Blockchain Insider next week, but goodbye for now.